My name is Josh. Just Josh. No last name. Or at least no last name I can tell you. I am a podcaster. I guess that makes me one of the most hunted, endangered species on Earth. I'm just kidding. There's way too many of us. This is Josh Gunderson, and you're listening to the Millennial Agenda Animorphs Edition. Welcome back, everyone, to the Millennial Agenda Animorphs Edition, a weekly bonus episode where Kevin and I come together to discuss Animorphs, a sci-fi action series by K.A. Applegate. This week, we are discussing book two, The Visitor. Kevin, take it away. All right. So The Visitor begins one week after the first book, and Tobias is teaching the other Animorphs how to fly in their new bird of prey morphs. And while they're enjoying soaring and diving, some hunters try to shoot them out of the sky. Uh, Rachel's currently a bald eagle, and she's especially furious about this. So she dives down at them, steals their rifle, and flies away to drop it in the middle of the ocean. Everyone gets back together, and they try to come up with a game plan to continue fighting the Yerks. But the only lead they have, other than Jake's brother Tom, is that their vice principal, Mr. Chapman, is a high-ranking controller. So Rachel used to be close friends with his daughter, Melissa, but she shares that Melissa hasn't been acting like herself for a few months, and they've kind of grown apart. Rachel doesn't really feel right trying to use their friendship against the Yerks, but she does try to reach out to Melissa at gymnastics practice. Melissa still gives her the cold shoulder, and Rachel decides to drop the issue. While she's walking home from practice, a van pulls over on the road next to her. A high school or college-aged guy gets out and tells Rachel to get in the van. Uh, Rachel runs. She starts morphing into an elephant as she's running away, but she stops while she's still mostly human. She turns around and scares her attacker away. But shortly after she's back to being fully human, Chapman pulls up with Melissa in the car and offers her a ride home. Rachel is terrified that Chapman saw her morphing because she knows it means she's dead. Uh, But it starts to rain and he's being really persistent, so she can't turn them down. Rachel sees that Chapman is suspicious and decides that since she can't get into the house as Melissa's friend, she will morph into Melissa's cat, whose actual name is Fluffer McKitty, (laughs) in order to spy on Chapman. After she acquires Fluffer's DNA, Rachel heads into the house and discovers that Chapman has a secret basement office where he talks to Visitor 3 directly with hologram technology. Rachel is spotted by Visitor 3, who orders Chapman to kill her as she could be an Andalite and morph. Rachel doesn't react, and Chapman explains that the cat isn't a threat, so Visitor 3 drops the issue. Before she leaves the house, she checks on Melissa to see if she's a controller too, and learns that Melissa has pulled away from her friends because her parents have stopped acting like they love her and she's depressed. Rachel decides to keep the encounter with Visitor 3 a secret so she can go back into the house another night to try to help Melissa. Tobias can tell she's not being completely honest, so the gang sends Jake in with Rachel as a flea on her back, unbeknownst to her. Rachel spends some time comforting Melissa as her cat, and then heads to the basement hoping to get some more intel. However, Visitor 3 spots her again and insists that Chapman bring her to him because she's got to be an Andalite. Rachel gets loaded into a kitty carrier and is brought to the abandoned construction site, uh, the other Animorphs come to her aid by crashing some construction equipment into a Yerk ship, destroying it and causing a distraction. Rachel, who is still a cat, breaks out of the kennel and is chased by Visitor 3 himself. She barely escapes when she leaps off a wall and is caught mid-air by Tobias, who carries her to safety. And that's the book. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on mm-hmm. here. And um, the overall theme is Rachel makes terrible decisions. <laughs> The overall theme is that Rachel makes impulsive decisions. She feels something and she reacts and she just does it. And this is a really great introduction to that side of her character because right now we're seeing that carried out in smaller ways, but that becomes a much bigger thing later on. True. And I like, I, so I want to start off with the uh, attempted abduction because it's super creepy in that it's a complete throwaway 
in that the only mention of it that comes later is Jake kind of chastises her for it, but no one bothers to be like, oh, hey, you okay? You almost just got kidnapped? Or who the hell knows what the... Like, it was such a throwaway mm-hmm. moment that she doesn't tell anyone about. Yeah, and again, like we said last week, she's 12 or 13. Like, this is not like, oh, like a young college girl or like a like an 18-year-old high schooler. Like, no, she's literally a child. And the book describes the guy that's that gets out of the van as being high school or maybe college age. So he's trying to abduct this little girl. And we can assume that because he didn't recognize her morphing technology as alien, that this dude is not a controller. This isn't some kind of yerk method of abducting unwilling hosts. This is literally just some creepy dude. I'm I'm starting to question how safe this town is that all these kids are just aimlessly walking around. (laughs) Because... I mean, you've apparently got in this town alone, you've got drunk rednecks just shooting at birds willy nilly. And then two chapters later, just a, a casual abduction. Uh, no wonder no wonder their parents don't walk, want them walking through that goddamn construction site. <laughs> I mean, and, and thank God in both those instances that they weren't controllers. Granted, I feel that controllers have better things to do than sit and casually shoot at birds. So it wouldn't be the worst idea considering that they're, they, you know, believe that there's these Andalite bandits running around. Uh, so why not just randomly kill animals? I guess uh, I'll, I'll give him props for that. I don't I don't even know how to handle this information. This abduction is just creepy. And what a weird again, it's these are children's books. Did anyone at Scholastic read these books is really kind of my question right now. <laughs> who who at Scholastic was like, oh, yeah, this is fine. Everything's everything's OK. Put it put it in the book fair. Kids will love it. Somebody turned into a cat on the cover. It's going to be absolutely fine. It is impulsion on on Rachel's part, but it's very disturbing. And it's that impulse that gets her in trouble the first time around because she does go into the Chapman's house as Fluffer and decides to spend an obscene amount of time trying to console Melissa. If I remember correctly, she damn near misses her window to get out of that morph. Yeah, it's really, really close just not a smart decision but I, we actually have to backtrack a little bit because i can't i've got it written down i can't believe i forgot about this is we're starting to see a lot of just the trauma affecting them in different ways because in order to get the dna from fluffer they have to first attract him and he's an outdoor cat so they've decided that they're going to use bait bait in the form of rachel as a uh, shrew to be able to catch him and she gets very much overwhelmed by the shrew's instincts when she first morphs in because she's they're dealing with these these two brains in their heads now and the shrew's instinct is to get the fuck out of here as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. here's my thing with the whole shrew plan what kind of plan is that (laughs) like this is again rachel's impulsivity is just not always the greatest thing because the first idea they have is hey, I can morph into a small thing and we'll see if the cat kills me. Oh, yeah, yeah, good idea. Let's do that. Like, could we not think of a better way to catch a cat? Maybe cat food, like a, a treat, like something that's not alive? Just a, just a thought. I mean, I know it's not easy to catch an outdoor cat, but like there surely had to be a, other ideas floated before they settled for turn yourself into prey and hope it doesn't catch you before we do. <laughs> but I mean, we are talking about 12, 13-year-old kids, so it might have just been that's one fair. of those hey this seems logical so i will i will give them that but we 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 see it constantly that they don't have good ideas ever (laughs) 
because they're these young kids fighting this guerrilla war and they have no instruction. They have no direction. They're not soldiers. So they're dealing with it as they come. So I can I can kind of suspend my disbelief and be like, okay. But then she does go about her mission where she does see Visitor 3 talking to Chapman for the first time. And I guess part of this also like brings me back to like, how long has this been going on? Because I doubt the Chapmans had a secret room in their basement to begin with. So they're just casually building secret. Like, I feel like Melissa would have noticed that construction project. Casual <laughs> things that are going to bug the crap out of me. But Visser 3 is evil. He's also weirdly obsessed with eating things. And I'm noticing this more and more because he eats Elfangor. He morphs into something and eats Elfangor. But he's also wildly cannibalistic because while he's talking to Chapman, he's threatening Chapman. He wants the Andalite bandits. He wants the invasion of Earth to go a lot more smoothly than it is. And so he morphs into a creature called the Vanarchs, or they call it the Yerkbane. And it's a creature who can suck Yerks out of the heads of whatever their host is. And to prove to Chapman that he's serious, he does it to another another human controller. And I, I'm going to go ahead and guess that, that like cannibalism isn't the most kosher thing in the world for any species, <laughs> uh, except for the taxons. But no. <laughs> so... So that's going on. And that like that leads me to a ton of different questions because like can he taste it? Like are, are you tasting the yerk? Are you tasting your buddy there? I don't know why this is a sticking point for me, but that really stood out <laughs> is this insane cannibalism. But then I, I and I completely sidetracked myself there, but going back to the shrew, I we're seeing I think sci-fi no longer describes these books after this one for me i think we're now in like the sci-fi mm -hmm. horror territory which we talked about a bit last time but k.a applegate just seems to really enjoy not only the very visual and disgusting descriptions of the feeling of morphing but now going into these nightmares because rachel has a nightmare the the day after the shrew incident before she initially infiltrates the chapman's house and I, I hope none of y'all are eating because I'm about to read this. But she describes it as she wakes up from this nightmare and her sister comes in and asks if she's okay. And she's like, you were yelling maggots because that's normal. And she kind of settles back in and she starts thinking about this dream. And it was maggots squirming, crawling, busy little white maggots. They were all over a piece of rotting meat and fur. In my dream, it was a dead cat, a dead cat covered with vermin, eating the decayed flesh. A shrew was getting in on the feast, eating the dead flesh and the living maggots with equal enjoyment. In my dream, I knew I was the shrew. How many times can you fit the words dead flesh into a paragraph? And apparently it's a lot. <laughs> I'm I'm shocked this didn't give me nightmares as a kid. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was first starting this series and reading things like that, that stuff would make me squirm a lot more than pretty much anything else I'd encountered, whether it was movies, books. You know, I could sit and watch a horror movie with really gruesome stuff in it, and I'd be like, it's a movie, it's fine. But reading stuff like that about, you know, wanting to eat dead flesh and live maggots at the same time and like them both, that really made my skin crawl in a different way. It's wildly unpleasant and it just, it doesn't get better. So mm -hmm. it, it, so it's just, it, it's again, it's just one of those crazy things that when it comes to these books, but going, so going back now to the Chapman, so she, she has the successful first infiltration, even though she almost screws it up. And next time around, it's made very clear that Jake doesn't trust her. And it seems like none of them trust her. She describes 
at one point knowing that Tobias is communicating with them individually in thought speak while kind of keeping her out of it. And they're showing a lot of concern for her. And so they send Jake in that second time as a flea, which is pretty much useless because he describes it as I can't see or hear anything. So good job, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) We're all proud of you on that one. But she goes back and is captured. But even even before this, we see that uh, Visser 3 is not the most liked dude in the galaxy. Even his troops are not on board with him at all. Because mm-hmm. Chapman comes out of that first meeting and his his wife, or his, the, the year that's in his wife, um, is like, so how was that? And he's like, oh, it was great. He murdered somebody in front of me. And that was great and wonderful and everything's feeling good. And he says, I wish the council of 13 would find out what kind of mess he's making on this planet. So it's definitely an instance where somebody got a promotion because they managed to do one thing, right. And in his case, he got himself an Andalite body. I think between that response from Chapman and seeing things like the Van Arks, you know, the Yerkbane, Visor three is really willing to do whatever it takes to be Number one, he wants to be Visitor One. He wants to be the ruler of the galaxy, and he does not care what he has to do to get there. And this is where we, we were talking last week about that kind of gray morality, where even the bad guys are looking at this bad guy and saying, "This is not right. This is he's going a little too far with this." And the fact that we're already getting a taste of that in the second book, that's going to go a lot further too. I mean, Visitor Three really is truly insane. He's mucking this up left and right. We see it more and more, which I find hilarious that he it feels like he was like sent on a shit assignment because the council of 13 and all the other head yerks were like oh just go away <laughs> and he's screwing it up so bad it's <laughs> it's gonna come back and bite him i'm sure so yeah so there's a lot of distrust amongst his troops but then there's distrust of rachel because she is wildly impulsive and that impulse if she had just been honest the first time around like this is what she saw instead of i want to make my friend feel better and i totally get that but we are in a Mm -hmm. war we don't and even marco who has been the voice of reason most of the time who wants to play it safe was just kind of like yo we can't worry about one person right now we got to worry about a ton of people and Mm -hmm. she winds up getting herself caught and thankfully the others followed her they were able to rescue her because we just really enjoy that abandoned construction site they just need to bulldoze that (laughs) and it's just you gotta use your head girl please the love of god you're gonna find yourself saying that a lot when we do rachel's books (laughs) i though i will say i i enjoy the different perspective and i think what's very unique and really cool about all of this is that it's definitely a different voice for rachel in how she's describing everybody how she's describing her friends how she's describing each situation it's wildly different from jake who Jake, Jake mm-hmm. seems, it's very just matter of fact, like it, it's very dude-like where it's just like, oh yeah, this, this is the, these are the facts. This is what's happening. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And Rachel, we get to see a little bit more of a brain, but I'm also, I'm just, it's book two and I'm still on board with, I'm so happy that Rachel is not in charge. Yeah. That's most of it for me. Cause I, it's, there's a lot that happens in this book. There's a lot to digest, but I also feel like it was mm-hmm. one of the most boring 
This one has a lot of information packed in, but it definitely was not the most exciting because even in situations where Rachel is in the office and Visitor 3 notices the cat the first time around, it doesn't really have that like stress of like, oh my God, how is she going to get out of here? The end of the book where she gets taken to the construction site, that was like where the book picked up for me was the last couple chapters of like, how are they going to get out of this one? I don't see it happening. One thing that did stick out to me in this book that I thought was really funny is that Visitor 3 also has like this low-key obsession with cats. Like he really, really likes the cat morph. And he even makes a comment about how it's a shame that the cat body is too small for a year to infest because he would love to like be able to be a cat. And it's like, my dude, you can be a cat. You are in an Andalite body. So you can just morph one if you really want to. Uh, But... (laughs) I just think it's so funny that he has like all this respect for cats. Like even we all know anyone who's ever interacted with a cat or owned a cat knows that cats understand that they are the supreme beings of this planet. And I just think it's really wonderful that other intelligent life forms from other galaxies are also acknowledging that cats are superior. It's, I mean, as I have two of them staring at me right now, I can completely agree with that. (laughs) I thought that it makes me wonder a little bit about your physiology physicality words are hard mm-hmm. because they're they're described as tiny gray slugs so as i'm sitting here looking at my cat with her giant <laughs> ears i like what are the like you got no bones what why can't you squeeze mm-hmm. into first off you're an andalite just absorb the dna and turn into a cat but right. like what what are the limits here i i in my head, the slugs are, like, they aren't slugs in the sense of, like, slugs that you would see in your yard. You know, they're not tiny. They're probably more, like, I almost see them as being about, like, the size of, like, a banana, but just a little bit, like, fatter and shorter than that. Um, so it does describe at some point in the books that the way that they go into the brain, uh, they go through the ear. Obviously, as far as human biology goes, there isn't a direct path from the ear to the brain. You'd have to like go all over the place to get there. So what they actually do is they inject a numbing agent into your inner ear, and then they burrow through everything to get into the brain. Um, So they have some kind of way to cut through tissue and bone and everything. And then once they're in there, they spread out over the brain. So I get the vibe that the cat brain is just physically too small for them to actually spread out over completely so once they're spread out over it they kind of sink into the little crevices it's not just a matter of them like sitting on top of your brain pushing buttons they actually almost like become one with the brain and i think there's just not enough space in a kitty noggin to get that done i'm so glad we're having this conversation before i make dinner because it's just really (laughs) (laughs) this is just really building up my appetite between the maggots and the brain burrowing (laughs) <laughs> um, also a fun fact that I looked up because I was curious about the very specific naming of Fluffer McKitty. I was like, I wonder if the authors had a cat with that name or something. Um, and while it doesn't seem like they ever had a cat named Fluffer McKitty, uh, K.A. Applegate does own two cats. One is named Rabbit and the other cat's full name is Dick the Evil Footbiting Cat. <laughs> Which tells me a lot about who K.A. Applegate is as a person and just makes me love her even more. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, there was uh, the video that I sent you a while ago where her and Michael Grant describe sort of the coming about of the idea of the Animorphs series. And Mm -hmm. they sort of brainstorm the idea while out walking their cat. 
that's enough for me to love her. <laughs> True. I wonder if it was Rabbit or if it was Dick the evil foot-biting cat that they were walking. <laughs> I mean, this was over 20 years ago, so who knows. Mm-hmm. But we, we do see a little bit of a, a human side of Rachel, which I'm kind of happy about because she does show a lot of care for her friend. Though at the same time, she still, even in showing that heart, shows way too much impulse because she leaves a note for Melissa. And because we're talking mid-90s, like, I really hope that she found a way to print this out because yeah. her friend's gonna know her handwriting. Well, and this that just reminded me of an important part that I don't think we actually talked about. Um, while Rachel was in the house, she found out that uh, the reason Chapman was a voluntary host was because he wanted to save Melissa from being infested. So at one point, um, when Visitor 3 sees Rachel as a cat and is saying, that's an Andalite, get her out of here. And Chapman's like, no, no, it's fine. He kind of waves it off. But then the second time, when Visitor 3 says, that's definitely an Andalite, and that's your daughter's cat, your daughter's going to get a host now, or your daughter's going to be a host now, because this means that she has some kind of connection to them. This is not okay. So Rachel finds out that literally Melissa's parents sacrificed themselves so that she would not become a host. And at one point, we get one of the only times that we see this happen in the series, actually, um, where the human that's, you know, being subdued in their own mind actually starts to fight for control of their own body. And they have they're like trying to move their arms. They're moving their faces around. They don't quite talk, but they're trying to. That's the most control that we ever see a human get of their own body while you're just in their head. And I think it's really telling that um, when that happens, it's because it's we're talking about parents loving their child and doing anything in their power to protect their child. So part of this whole fight for Rachel wanting to comfort Melissa is also knowing something that Melissa doesn't know, that her parents might be acting like they don't love her right now. But in reality, her parents are doing everything in their power and doing more than most people are able to do to try to protect her. So that's why she writes that note, because she saw firsthand just how much those two, how much the Chapmans love Melissa. And she wants her to have some idea of that, because it's just heartbreaking. I mean, to imagine, even without the alien side of it, just imagine if one day your parents, when they're so affectionate and so caring for you, out of nowhere, they just stop talking to you. They don't really care about anything. They're indifferent to you how terrible that would make you feel, you know? And then that added layer of the fact that they're actually fighting for her secretly, it's just really heartbreaking, uh, Melissa's story. I mean, even when um, when Rachel's being carried out to the car to take her to the construction site, Melissa follows her dad and sees that it's Fluffer and starts freaking out. And she's like, what are you doing with my cat? And Chapman is just kind of like, what? Oh, eh, it's whatever. And Melissa is like, did you not hear me crying? Like, why are you not acknowledging me? And the, and Chapman is just like, don't worry about it. I'm just I'm just going to go. Like, he just completely is indifferent to her. It's just really sad. And I'm, I, I just found the chapter because it was going to bug me. Um, so she did, in fact, print it out on her word processor, which is a very <laughs> old sentence. <laughs> oh, I will give her that. It is. It, it's, it's heartbreaking, frustrating, and especially something now that she gets a little bit of what Jake is kind of going through with his brother, Tom. Because a good, a good chunk of Jake's plans really just revolve around saving his brother. So I, I do get that. I do want to touch on, because uh, we, we skipped over this, and I find it highly amusing. When she first gets into the Chapman's house, 
and Mrs. Chapman is making dinner. So that's nice, casual and normal. But Mr. Chapman's just sitting in the living room in just complete darkness with no TV or anything on. He's just kind of sitting there. And I have to wonder, because these creatures, Yerks, are born blind, deaf, and the only way that they can experience the world is by taking over somebody. You'd think you'd be a little bit more excited about being able to move around, see things, hear things, maybe take the time, pick up a book and learn about the world you're invading. <laughs> I, It's just, you're choosing, you're, you know, you have this body that you can do just about anything with, and you're choosing to just sit there in the darkness and i'm realizing as i say this that i'm describing basically how i spent my day playing animal crossing <laughs> but i don't need ka applebate coming at me like that so <laughs> but it's just so and i i so i yeah that can be depressing if your your dad is just always sitting in the darkness staring into nothingness there's still this uh tobias seems the one to be that have the most hope because uh, we end on the line from him because they're they're kind of like summing up because she said Rachel admits I left her a note. I know it's bad for security. I know it's sentimental. I don't care. Chapman gave up everything to save his daughter from being made into a host. I had to do something. And they they say, you know what? We destroyed a, a Yerk bug fighter because apparently it's really easy to do with some old broken down construct. I, how'd they get it started? Yeah, that was one of the points in the book that I was, my suspension of disbelief was just not really there. I, How does a 12-year-old hotwire a an abandoned earth mover in a construction site that sounds like it hasn't really been actively used for a long time? I mean, it's not like they would just leave the keys sitting in this thing. Well, they left their equipment sitting there for God only knows how long. Like, I wonder if this company just went belly up in the middle of whatever they were building and just kind of was like, eh, fuck it, leave it all there. Right. And then on top of that, this construction equipment that's been abandoned for who knows how long is able to move quickly enough that these aliens who have <laughs> who have weapons that can literally just disintegrate the thing, it takes them all the way to destroying a bug fighter with it before they're like, oh, hey, look at that thing that's happening. <laughs> and then they shoot it because they do eventually shoot one of them and disintegrate it effectively. But then another one powers up. And then that one starts coming too. So they they had enough time to do this to two different vehicles. I don't even know how to do that as a 28-year-old. How does a 12-year-old know how to do that? <laughs> and on top of that, they're not even humans. Marco is a gorilla while he's doing that. So he's got gigantic hands. Like I <laughs> I can I can believe the holograms and I can believe turning into animals and i could believe visitor three turning into a giant rock creature with three legs and a human-sized head but a 12 year old hot wiring a construction equipment i don't know about that yeah that's that is where i draw the line in this <laughs> make-believe make nonsense where children are turning into animals i because there wasn't even google to look it up like i mean mm -hmm. yeah that's that's gonna be my sticking point for this book and yet then, you know, if we want to continue the things I'm stuck on, they don't even mention the woman they saved. Someone's <laughs> like, hey, I wonder how she's doing. I'm still really upset about this. I feel like you're never going to let that woman go. <laughs> I'm I'm not. I, I refuse. Um, but yes, Tobias is the one that seems very hopeful at the end. He's got the last line because they're talking, you know, like I said, they're talking about, yeah, look, we, we destroyed the York bug fighter. We're not going to talk about how. Uh, we made Visser 3 nervous. He doesn't seem like he's got it all together anyway, but good for you. And you made it out alive. 
And Rachel, of course, is like, yep, next time. And Marco's like, oh, dear Lord, woman. And <laughs> Tobias just says there's going to be a next time and there's going to continue to be a next time until the Andalites return. So he's holding on hope that the uh, that help <laughs> is coming. But uh, set those expectations a little bit lower, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> so I've gotten out everything I have. Do you have anything else to add before we, we say goodbye? Oh, let me think. I, I think we pretty much covered everything. Um, one other funny little tidbit that I found when looking into this book is that uh, when they re-released, um, they relaunched the books in 2011, just the first few books. And uh, apparently they switched out some of the more dated references. So the PDFs that we are reading along are the originals from 1996. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they released in 2011, we have a couple of really funny things. So uh, there's one point where Marco apparently refers to a woman as a skank, but in the reprint, they change it to dog, which is much better, of course. At some point, Rachel refers to the morphing as creepazoid in the original, but the reprint makes it totally creepy. And then my favorite (laughs) is... um, there's a, an original edition where it's mentioned that Marco is listening to a CD player in class, but in the reprint, it's just modified to say he was just listening to music so that you could kind of like mentally fill in the blank of whatever dated thing you want him to be listening to. But I really love the idea of him with a CD player in class because in 96, like Walkmans were a thing, but they were bulky enough that you couldn't really hide them very well. Not to mention that headphones were also pretty bulky. So I don't know how this dude is chilling in class with a CD player and big ass headphones not being noticed. <laughs> I well, he's living in a town where an entire alien invasion with giant caverns being built went wildly unnoticed for a very long time. So it it seems like the adults <laughs> in this place are not paying much attention at all. Again, these so, are the things that we have a hard time believing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these are the problems that I have. So I I guess that wraps it up. So I thank all of you so much for listening. Next week, we are discussing uh, book three, The Encounter. If you'd like to read along, check out the show notes for a link to download the entire Animorphs series on PDF. New episodes of the Millennial Agenda are available every Monday, Animorphs editions each Friday. You can join us for online discussion on the Millennial Agenda Facebook page to let us know your thoughts on the books and any burning questions you might have. For now, that is it. We'll see you all next time. Happy reading. Thank <laughs> you.